This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Audio editing and bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Adventure design as game design. Gumshoe deep tips. Recent Asian action cinema. And the Berenstein Bears mystery. It blew up Kickstarter. It slid into Gen Con on a gurney with both guns blazing. And now Feng Shui 2 action movie role-playing is laying down the Kung Fu, the Gun Fu, and the Cybernetic Primate Fu at a retail store near you. In Feng Shui 2, you play a ragtag band of heroes. Inspired by the action movie canon. Especially the high-flying classics of Hong Kong cinema. Designed by me. Need we say more? Of course we didn't. But the gang at Atlas will think it's weird if we don't. Redeem your past misdeeds as a bullet-spraying killer. Heal the world through butt-kicking as the wise Sifu. Blast miscreants with the raw key power as a sorcerer. Channel the power of pure awesomeness as a transformed dragon. Or brain dudes with a parking meter as the big bruiser. 36 character types in all, bursting with furious action. Fight the bad guys who want to control the world. In the history-spanning conflict called the Chi War. Fought in the far past, the near past, a devastated future and now, now, now! For years, the number one question I got at cons was, when are you updating Feng Shui? Tons of people tell you the original changed the way they GM'd everything. And they're right, because they're experts on their own gaming experience. Well, now in a golden comeback for all time, Feng Shui has been updated, improved, streamlined. And clocks in at... 354 pages of gorgeously illustrated eye-smacking color. If your key powers can't stop a bullet, this stunning hardback can. You know it if you backed the Kickstarter. But maybe you bought the PDF only in order to support your local game store. Or, like a full metal nutball, neglected to grab the stunning GM screen. So now's the time to formulate a crazy plan that just might work. And contact your game retailer of choice. Reserving your copy of Feng Shui 2. That badass GM screen. And blowing up the movies, Robin's standalone book of essays on the action movie classics. Taking you inside the workings of 24 action movies. From the stone-cold classic to the unjustifiably obscure. Each essay shows you how the film delivers. And the lessons you can extract from it to enhance your own efforts as GM or player. So that's Feng Shui 2 in all its full-color glory. The GM screen in its likewise fetching utility. And blowing up the movies in all of its fun and dare I say it. You do dare, Robin. You do. Incisiveness. Now in retail. Go forth, dragons. Blow things up and... Save the world. The clatter of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the beneficent gaze of Peter Frampton tell us we have once more entered the gaming hut, and we've entered the gaming hut with matters in full swing. Why, indeed, we're entering the play of a full adventure. But yet, you say, aren't you designing a rule system? To which we say, ta-cha! That's why we're playing a full adventure. Robin, would you like to untangle this seeming paradox? Right. First of all, I'll note that this is actually a, a spiffy, new, modern, up-to-date 2015 edition of uh, the Gaming Hut. So in the place of Peter Frampton, we have uh, Florence of Florence and the Machine looking down on us. We have a beautiful new parquet floor. We have uh, a brushed uh, metal refrigerator in the uh, food area. And I think we're serving uh, some uh, artisanal... Uh, uh, nachos, because uh, this is a bleeding edge, up to the date, up to the minute uh, gaming hut, where I'm talking about the thing that I am designing 
uh, at this very moment. Well, not at this very moment. At this very moment, I'm probably at the film festival, but you know what I mean. Uh, so uh, a while back on the Twitters, I Twittered that uh, a really effective technique in designing a new role-playing game is to get started designing your a full adventure, not an intro adventure, but a full adventure that's supposed to represent what your game is supposed to do as early in the process as you possibly can. Now, of course, as early as you can differs from project to project. But for example, wh what I'm working on right now in the rules level is Gumshoe one-to-one. -one, and that, uh, as uh, uh, we've uh, mentioned on previous episodes, is a version of Gumshoe that is tuned to uh, one uh, GM, or in this case, one keeper, since we're starting off with Trail of Cthulhu, and one player. And in fact, in order to do that, it requires quite a substantial change to Gumshoe's standard uh, resolution mechanism, uh, which uh, for both investigative and for general abilities uh, in the, the main version of Gumshoe, its main function is to dole out spotlight time, whereas in uh, Gumshoe Wonder One, that's suddenly a complete non-issue because there is only <laughs> one player. And so uh, you're not trying to protect niches. You're not trying to make sure that everybody has a moment. And therefore, uh, the way that uh, the general uh, abilities work, uh, for example, is uh, quite different. And so uh, what I've been doing is uh, writing the introductory adventure, and it's a full-fledged uh, adventure. This is also in what I'm calling the Cthulhu Confidential setting, and that is a uh, uh, hard-boiled detective in Los Angeles uh, plus meets uh, Lovecraft. And so uh, there is a, a quite... Uh, and the adventure I'm trying to make is uh, basically the goal is to be as complex as a full Raymond Chandler novel. So it's not the, here's the quick little adventure where you learn how all the rules and mechanisms work, but it doesn't actually feel like the experience you're supposed to have when you sit down to play at the table. This is the whole Megillah. And what this is enabling me to do is to look at the uh, new resolution mechanic I have. And, and uh, when you're creating a set of rules and just writing them down, and even when you're creating an example, which is very useful when you're designing an, an important exercise, you can tend to think of things in sort of kind of an abstract level of, oh yeah, this is how this is going to go. But where the rubber really hits the road is when you try to use it in a situation in an adventure and see how well it applies. And so, for example, in this case, I've learned that the resolution uh, mechanic that I'm uh, currently uh, dealing with, and who knows what will be the case by the end of the development window, but the one that I'm dealing with, as I try to apply it to actual situations in the adventure and not the hypothetical situations of examples which are keyed to when you write an example its role is to make the rule seem to make sense and seem to work so of course you design the example to explicate the rule whereas when you mm -hmm. create an adventure you need to see if your rule serves as a tool to create the moment that you uh, wish to have the player's experience and uh, quite often you get different results. Am I making sense so far? So far, you are making sense to me, at least. Although, uh, from the amount of pushback you got on the Twitters, I am surprised that, um, I mean, I thought it was obvious when you said it, and then it turned out it wasn't. So, I guess, I don't know how, how obvious is too obvious, is what I'm trying to say here. Right. Uh, certainly, if it, it, if the goal of a game system is to 
empower game sessions, it seems odd that you would try to build one without ever having had a game session of that particular type. And certainly the chicken egg problem has to be resolved somehow. And I think writing and running a full adventure is a good way to do it because it's a macro version of the, you know, I'm going to write a subsystem. I'm going to write a chase mechanic. I have to play test a bunch of different chases to make sure they all work. Again, I'm writing a story building mechanic. I have to play test a story to make sure it works. That seems logical to me. Right. And it reminds you of things that you might think of to include in the rules or might not, for example. So while I'm writing the adventure, uh, the uh, general abilities basically are now uh, providing a sort of a three possible levels of success, uh, which have all sorts of interesting knock-on effects and being able to kind of uh, shape the story so that it only includes outcomes that fit its genre and the expectations that come with it, for example, which is maybe mm -hmm. a discussion for a different segment. Perhaps a, among my many hats when the product is actually out there for the uh, children. That, or we could keep talking about it as we go along and have sort of a uh, kind of a development workshop. An open thing. design hut. Uh, yes, as, as open as I get anyway. Um, yeah. But at any rate, as I was envisioning this rule while creating the rule in the rules text, I was thinking, okay, so you're always going to have these three levels of results and the top level of result is going to get you a positive uh, movement in the uh, story plus a benefit. The uh, the ordinary failure is you're not going to move ahead that much. And then there's a setback where you're going to be uh, pushed in an interesting but bad direction. But as I've been writing the challenges in the adventure, I'm coming to instances where, well, no, actually, in this case, I want the advanced ability, the, 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 strong, the strong success to give you a, a positive modifier on this, but I want the hold to actually be negative in this particular instance, and then the uh, setback to be really extra negative. And in this other instance, you actually want to drop the middle one entirely because a middling result is not interesting. And so by actually doing that, I will uh, not only see that I need to have these challenges uh, set up in a much more flexible way that enables more GM creativity and crafting as they create them, as if that is some sort of a positive benefit. Um, and, but also that I, when I then go and write the GM advice chapter on how to craft uh, these uh, challenges, I will be doing so based on my own experience of having created the adventure and be able to refer to the adventure as, well, here's why in this encounter the challenge was adjusted to do this. And here's the other situations in which you might want to skew it this way. Or here's, uh, you know, again, here's a, an example where I just used the straight up default version of the challenge system. And here's why I did that. And so that also enables a, uh, a better examination of how you take this and use it and adapt it to your own needs in order to teach the uh, GM to use this because uh, the GM is going to have to create a second adventure and is going to, uh, I think, benefit from having more of a masterclass in the book on how to do that and the free and how to freely exercise creativity in order to create effects using this kind of different uh, system and approach. So all of this sounds like common sense to me. And admittedly, I have uh, designed only a relative paucity of systems or been present at the design, as Dean Atchison might have said. Um, and both of my sort of soup-to-nuts systems that I've built have been uh, for things that already 
told us what the stories look like. So we knew what the adventures had to contain anyway. So when you're designing a Star Trek game to be played as a conventional role playing game, you have all of your conventional role playing habits, uh, that you can you know, know to nurture or, or the ones that you want to nurture at least. And you can have, uh, the knowledge of, you know, several hundred Star Trek episodes by that time. And you can, model what a Star Trek episode has to contain. And you can even model what all Star Trek episodes contain because it's a, it's a closed universe, right? So that strikes me as the kind of place where, uh, although we gamed out a lot of individual components of the system, building a adventure beforehand as we designed it was less important because so much of what we were doing came from prior art. But what you're doing with Gumshoe one-to-one is a fairly, uh, exotic subset of role-playing engines and a too large to encompass universe of stories. So you're kind of, you kind of have the opposite of both problems there. Uh, do you think that Gumshoe one-to-one is sort of a, a very, you know, what, what you might call the ideal case for creating a full adventure? Whereas if you were just building another Gumshoe game, you wouldn't necessarily have to build a full adventure because let's face it, you've built six Gumshoe games or however many. And so you kind of know how those adventures are supposed to work. Yes. Um, I would say two things. First of all, the deeper under the hood you're going, the more true this becomes. So specifically, it's referring to resolution systems. Um, if you are basically creating a big new skin for an existing resolution system and not changing the resolution system that much, you will find little things at the corners that you need to address. But you still might find them when you create the adventure. So, for example, if you are working on a new set of Star Trek rules, I think it actually is beneficial to, as soon as you can, start working on the adventure because you might get to, for example, the phaser duel and then real hey, wait a minute. My, the resolution mechanics we've created don't actually take stunning into effect because that's something you uh, don't always address in every role playing system. Mm -hmm. And we need to go back and to adjust that because here's a common role playing situation that I've just established. And I know that if I, stick with this rule that I came up with, we're going to have a weird situation in play because players are want to, going to want to do X and we need the uh, rule system that encourages them to instead do Y, which is the thing that makes sense in a Star Trek universe, for example. And the reason we're talking about this at all is that, in fact, uh, adventures are very often an afterthought in the creation of a set of role-playing rules is that um, they are often written last in the rule book. Um, now, sometimes, the uh, hopefully most of the time, the designer will have already been playtesting, uh, but they will have been playtesting adventures cooked up on the fly. And adventures that are cooked up on the fly uh, tend to work very differently uh, than ones that you sit down and, and, and write. And often you will uh, give yourself enormous freedom when you are improvising adventures. But if you're not careful, you can sit down and write an adventure that at least seems not to allow the GM to do enough improvising to make it their own. And as I also suggested, you know, often there isn't just room in the rule book for a full adventure. It's often a little slim introductory thing. And you also run into the problem where uh, you spend all of your time working on the rules kit and then you get the uh, rules book out and then you go, oh, wait, should we have an adventure for this? And that's <laughs> really too late uh, for marketing reasons, but also... Uh, you would, uh, you know, even if you've been playtesting improvised adventures, the written adventure is what teaches other people 
what your experience that you had at your own game table was supposed to be like. And if you uh, aren't, uh, if you just view that as, as an afterthought, you're not only leaving out the opportunity to, to teach yourself all sorts of ways in which your rules will be practically uh, used, but you are failing to present a template uh, to the GM and players as to what it is that they're expected to replicate. Yeah, that, I mean, that for my money is one of the cr- crucial reasons to have an adventure in the core book. And that is not necessarily, you know, doesn't go necessarily to where you design it in the process. But without an adventure, it's very hard to say, this is what a game session should look like, especially to someone who has maybe only played uh, one kind of game, right? If they've only played an F20 game, playing a Cthulhu game is going to feel like a whole new universe. And for people who didn't make that shift in 1981, uh, like I did, it's still going to feel just as weird as it did for me in 1981. And so you need to be able to present those sorts of, uh, core experiences in the, in the play of the game in the adventure as early as possible to sort of get that buy-in, uh, early. And I guess what I'm saying is, the degree of difference between conventional role playing and a new, even a new subject matter, because obviously, uh, Call of Cthulhu, the sanity mechanic, uh, signally aside, is not crazily mechanically different from RuneQuest, but even RuneQuest feels different from Call of Cthulhu, and, uh, RuneQuest felt pretty different from D&D. Uh, so the degree to which it changes once the rule set is done, is the other thing, because I, I think maybe what you have to do is you have to write a full adventure while you're designing the rule system. This would be in the ideal world where we all have time and money. Um, and then write a different full adventure when you're done designing it to make sure that your full adventure recaps the full experience of play and signals the kind of game you want it to have. And I'm certainly, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a sinner in this regard as well. The, the introductory adventure, haha, in Trail of Cthulhu is one of the least introductory things I've ever written. It was just the game that I was using to play test a gumshoe Cthulhu when I was running right. it. It was the perfect game for you to play at your table, yes. but not the perfect thing to introduce other players to the experience <laughs> with. Yeah. And, and it's a great scenario. I, I stand by it, but it is not an introductory scenario. And it is maybe not the first thing you want to see out of the box when you open a Cthulhu game. So should there be a rejiggering of Trail of Cthulhu in the future, we will also be rejiggering that adventure. Um, uh, and again, like I say, in light of having seen what the whole game is supposed to do, sort of to represent that in a more direct fashion. Although I'll argue that scenario represents what the game's supposed to do. It just represents it, you know, you, you it's very much shove them in the deep end. And if they swim, they love the it, game. It's the grab. Uh, it's the 401. It's not the 101. Yeah. It, it, it needs to be closer to the 101, certainly. Um, and, and I guess I would other, I guess I would close by saying that role playing game design is a marriage of the technical and the artistic. And that the process of creating the rules is uh, the technical uh, layer of tools that you're giving people in order to create the artistic expression, which is the adventure. And if you uh, forget that, you're just going to spend all your time designing the lenses and the cycloramas and the uh, the gobos that direct the lighting. But you're going to forget, uh, you know, what are the tools that I actually need all the time? Uh, to make this work. So for another, you know, really brief example, as I was writing the rules, I was envisioning 
uh, every general ability test is going to be set up like one of these challenges. And then as soon as I wrote the adventure and had a scene where the lead character has the option of staking out a place to see if everybody leaves and then investigating it, which is not a spoiler, um, I, I realized, <laughs> oh, wait, sometimes you don't want all of those things because it's actually too complicated. You still need a quick test, which is just a straight pass-fail. And mm. I would have uh, potentially missed that. Now, theoretically, I would have found that when I wrote the adventure and then had to go back and insert that uh, rules text. But it is better for me as a designer to have that understanding up front and incorporate that while I'm writing the rest of the book than it is to add that late in the process. So I guess our takeaway is that if you have the time budget to do so, you should be getting as close to a full adventure during the process of design as you possibly can, and ideally all the way through it, and then go back and do an actual introductory adventure, which may be an entirely different animal from the one that you have made the secret skeleton of the game. And then the advantage is you've got two adventures, so you can sell one. I, I'm not I'm not 100% sure of that because I would question... I think that sometimes tutorial adventures that teach you the rules give you a weird impression of what the game is supposed to be and turn people off. But that might be a, a whole another segment. Yes, I think it might be. And I think Peter Frampton might have a little something to say about that, even to the lovely Florence. Oh, he's coming alive again. And when Peter Frampton comes back alive, you know that we must flee to the peace and safety of the next segment. The Escapist calls it gaming's most insane supplement. After a century of secrecy, three months of non-stop publicity, and a record-breaking Kickstarter campaign, the Dracula dossier is finally available for pre-order by you, the home listener. Not just Dracula Unredacted, the true first draft of Bram Stoker's novel, an after-action report for British intelligence, annotated by three generations of MI6 analysts, but also the massive director's handbook that allows you to follow the clues dropped in the pages and in the margins of that uncanny document. Follow them, that is, to any of 200 different encounters, eerie objects, dangerous locations, and conspiratorial organizations, and enigmatic NPCs, any of which can be an innocent, or turned by Edom, or a minion of Dracula himself. Pretty clever, eh, Robin? Bet you wish you'd thought of that. Uh-huh, yeah. Thus creating an improvisational collaborative campaign for Knight's Black Agents, strangely similar to Robin's own Armitage Files campaign for Trail of Cthulhu. Strangely, but with more vampires. Way more vampires. Because the Dracula dossier blows the lid off Operation Edom, the rogue MI6 task force using Dracula to stop terror in the 21st century. But Dracula cannot be used. And Edom cannot be trusted. So open the dossier. And follow the clues. To kill Dracula for good. Yeah, that'll work. So let's sum up. The Dracula dossier is two books. Check. Both stand alone. Check. But combined, they create an unprecedented... Really, can unprecedented? Of unprecedented scope? How's that? Oh, uh, let's see. Both books add up to something like 800 pages. So yeah, an improvisational collaborative campaign of unprecedented scope. Check! And Dracula Unredacted, that's Stoker's real first draft, annotated by the MI6. And the director's handbook, a massive collection of multifaceted encounters, are both available for pre-order at the Pelgrain website right now. Check! And mate, the game is mine, I think. No, Robin. It's theirs.
And we return once more to Ken and Robin Recycle Audio. And this time we're recycling the very last of our audio because, uh, like indigenous cultures, we use up every bit of the panel. And so uh, we're returning a, a final time to the investigative mastery panel from Gen Con. And the voices you will hear will be the voice you're hearing now is uh, my voice. You hear Ken's voice. Uh, you will hear the... Uh, charming lilt of Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. You will hear the English tones of Simon Rogers, and you will hear our special guest, uh, Ruth Tillman, who will be uh, sharing her experience as an emerging writer of gumshoe material. As on our previous episodes, uh, we have to thank uh, Ben Riggs. Ben Riggs of uh, uh, Terminal Magic's fame. You'll be hearing an ad from him a little later in the podcast. Uh, but he uh, very kindly not only recorded the panel, but paid attention to the questions that were being asked and restates them on the audio that he provided us. So the voice you will hear introducing the questions is that of Ben Riggs. So take it away, Ben. How should a game master switch up gumshoe to allow for different styles of investigative play? Um, well, I, for example, the, the cat who solves mysteries is perhaps something we'll have to wait for gumshoe one-to-one, which I'm working on now. Uh, but in general, uh, look at what the, tro- what the tropes of the uh, genre are. Uh, what the sort of uh, style assumptions are, what sort of people you tend to meet, uh, you know, just break down uh, what it is about this genre that interests you enough to want to play it, and then have more of that. And so uh, often these things are, we're talking about, when we're talking about investigation, we've been talking a lot about structure, and now we're talking about the trappings, the flavor that goes on the structure. And surprisingly, the structure is very robust from genre to genre. Uh, and if you, uh, you know, just sort of vary up the flavor, it will seem very different to the players while still allowing that very powerful, simple structure to move them through the story. Gumshoe has a very strong adventure design format. To what degree, as gumshoe writers, do you find this format elevating, and to what degree do you find it constraining? Well, I invented a bunch of the formats, so uh, they they work the way I think. What what was your experience, Ruth? (laughs) Picking up trails. So the reason that I started running gumshoe, I have done various things with Lovecraft-related things. I do a Clark Ashton Smith podcast, so I was very much interested in possibly running uh, Call of Cthulhu, Delta Green, and then stumbled into trail because somebody had put a thing up at a local auction. They'd put up um, Shadows Over Filmland and the trail book. And I said, oh, wait, wait, this. I like opened it up and said, this is this format, this format of adventure just speaks to me. So for me, it was just like the thing that clicked in my brain and made sense of it all. Um, as as uh, the publisher seeing lots of writing coming in, uh, the one important distinction is between uh, game masters writing their own gumshoe material, which they can do with an amazing shorthand that makes it quite straightforward to run things, and the fact that for published adventures we have to do all the work for the game masters. That is our job. We have to do all the hard lifting. Everything has to be presented in a way that is uh, easy to use on the fly and is written uh, in a particular uh, predetermined style. And Lots of writers, until they get over the hurdles, find that quite difficult. And that's kind of quite far in. The actual construction of the mystery, we have quite clear uh, guidelines as to how you can construct a mystery, and it's different for each setting. Um, But we often find um, particular uh, repetitive errors creep in, and often the most common one of those is that 
it's a bunch of NPCs doing stuff and you're kind of watching them. That is the most common mistake we get from, uh, from even some experienced writers. They'll be telling you this amazing story and then the first question is always, what do the PCs do and how do their choices make any kind of a difference? And uh, similar to that, uh, we see instances where the writer gives us a lot of information about what's going on and what the motivations of the bad guys are, and, and, have, and they don't answer the question, how do the players uncover this? How does this information reach the player interface? It's not just closet drama for the GM to read and enjoy. It's got to have some way of moving through the GM player membrane uh, into the heads of, of the players, and that's something. Uh, so as you're, uh, so that's kind of step one is to determine, you know, who's who are the antagonists, what are they doing, why is it hard to figure out what they're doing, how do you then figure out what they're doing? But you need those last two steps to have what's really an investigative game, as opposed to a series of notes towards a short story that you haven't quite written. I find that. Uh with the structure that gumshoe games have, for me at least, the great thing that they do is they remind me what belongs in the scenario in the first place. Even if I violate Robin's carefully laid out, there's a pipe, there's an exposition, there's a thing, you're not labeling, I hate you. Uh, I forget exactly how it goes, but that's roughly what it is. Um, even if I'm doing my you know, ocean of clues, Yogg-Sothoth gets into your brain and this happens and blah, 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 I still follow that basic structure of I want to make sure that all of these beats happen because otherwise it isn't going to be a mystery. It's just going to be a horrible thing that happens for no reason, which is great in Trail, but is no good in any of our other games. Yeah. <laughs> and so well, I enjoy having that structure to lean on when I need it and to backstop me if I have gotten away from it in my excitement about X thus or so. But I feel that following it just right down the line, at least with the way that I write, winds up the adventure either feeling under-flavored or repetitive. And that is something that I try to avoid doing. Repetitive bores me, under-flavored bores you. Um, I don't want anyone involved in this equation to be bored. So that's, for me, it is a, a it, we call it a scenario spine. I consider it a scenario spine. You have to have it to make the thing stand up, but if you can see it, that's probably a bad sign. <laughs> right. The, the, the point of a structure is not to lock you in, but to sort of teach you how to replicate it. Yeah. So that, uh, th and the reason that, you know, when I design uh, an adventure that is, uh, that slavishly adheres to that structure, that's not necessarily me saying, you can only do it this way, but here's how to do it. Yeah. And so once you learn how to do that, then, you know, you've got to learn the basics of any art form in order to then break those basic rules because they're not rules, they're just sort of uh, defaults that help you out when you're getting started. So if you do a brilliant adventure that breaks the structure, it's a brilliant adventure. The fact that it breaks the structure is, is irrelevant. And for those of you who are not playing gumshoe games, this is something that you can still steal for your games is to look at the gumshoe uh, GM advice and go, okay, well what's the core structure of a D&D &D mystery or a cyberpunk mystery and uh, you could either you know just directly rip off all those structural elements or you could adjust it to uh, create for yourself basically that's a set of questions that you ask yourself when you get started uh, to make sure that you've covered all of your angles and have something that's coherent enough for the uh, players to solve 
what should a game master do about a player who is uncertain when he has enough information and continues asking questions? Uh, the the uh, Gumshoe makes a couple of suggestions there. Uh, one of them is you can just uh, call scene. You can just hold up a card that says, you know, time to move on. Uh, in uh, one playtest, I actually uh, downloaded the Law and Order ka-ching sound <laughs> and played that when they had enough information to, to draw the scene to a close, and that actually worked really well. Another way is that you can feed their uh, investigator's ego and they and you and so they're they've got the zero point clues. They're investigated the guy. You feel like the, there's no more thematic or narrative juice to be gotten out of the scene. So you say, your 14 years on the force tell you that this guy's not going to tell you anything else. On your way back to the precinct house, are you going to stop anywhere? Right. Just move them through it, but move them in a way that complements their character and feeds into their sense of who their character is, as opposed to saying there's nothing else here. And then that could be either you're too stupid and I'm not going to waste my time on it, or it could be you're boring and annoying, or it could be nope, you did a good job, and I like to emphasize that it's the third one because they're they're playing this character in order to have some sort of you know ex- more exciting life than whatever it is they do by day. Uh, so why not feed that a little bit? And it doesn't harm the mystery at all if they feel like their character competently got himself out of the scene as opposed to had to be shoved out forcibly by you know the landlord and the GM working in tandem. In uh, Mutant City Blues, which is our uh, super-powered police procedural, that uses uh, policier tropes, and part of that is that you know there's a lot of grinding legwork to uh, investigation, and so in that game, but not in others, I would you know end a scene by saying, after uh, six hours of uh, grinding, exhausting legwork with uh, the coffee burning, uh, acid burning in your stomach, you realize there's nothing more in the files and it's time to move on so that you can describe how boring that part of it was without actually playing out in real time its excruciating boringness. Or you can do a thing where, you know, in a horror game, uh, uh, you, you can say, uh, you know, the rustling noises in in between the walls of space-time are getting closer. You're only going to have time to grab that one file. Fortunately, you're an experienced archivist, so you know which file to grab. Maybe once you've exercised the monsters, you can come back. And then once they come back, you just say, okay, here's your four-point pool that answers any questions you have. There. Uh you're done. Yeah. We're uh, heading toward time, but I think we have time for uh, one uh, brilliant question or a series of short ones. How well does Gumshoe pair with inserting an element of time crunch into its adventures? Uh, you mean in the game world rather than at the table? Uh, the, the ticking clock is always very effective, uh, and Ken, I guess, Knight's Black Agents really makes a lot of use of that. Yeah. Um, the ticking clock is just... it. The Nice Black Agents uh, basically is built on me watching the Bourne movies obsessively. Uh, and the discovery that I made is that information always leads you into danger. And the reward for danger is more information. And so if you're in an ongoing struggle, right, you have to keep moving to get more information. And the other, the sort of the outside emphasis, as opposed to the structural emphasis, is vampires know you're looking for them. They're not just sitting around. We have a whole Van Pyramid that tells you what they're up to if you feel like the players are lollygagging. What's their next step to make their lives a miserable living hell? And so the GM can say, well, I'm 
they're at level three of the Van Pyramid. I'm pulling down a level three response. I'm adding this to their nightmares. If they've, you know, attracted the attention of the local authorities or the MI6 or the Russian mob, those guys have got dice mechanics that drive them into the story. So it may or may not be you have three days to solve this, but it's like we have to solve this before literally everyone in Marseille wants us dead. And that can add a certain tension. Um, there's, there's another useful technique, particularly in something like Knights Black Agents or anywhere where you've got modern communication, and that is uh, something terrible's happened, a text comes in, you have to act on it now, whatever it is. There's, there's a murder on, there's a, a riot ongoing, get in the squad car, off, off you go. Um, or uh, if in Knights Black Agents, one of your contacts is saying, I'm being shot at. And they just drop what they're doing and they then go, go straight for it, whatever it is. And that's quite a good way to get to segue from an investigation into a sudden action scene is, is one way, uh, as opposed to necessarily having ghouls jump in through the window, although that's perfectly acceptable. How can a game master address the problem of having antagonists without motivation in a gumshoe game? What could gravity want from this situation? Yeah. <laughs> right, because you're rarely investigating the mystery, and it turns out that Cthulhu directly killed the guy. There's, like, uh, Cthulhu is sort of more, as you suggest, the weather. It's like, it's like, who killed Roger Ackroyd? It was Cthulhu. He <laughs> was, was just messing with you. <laughs> the only clue is this enormous footprint that crushed most of Croydon. Who could it have been? <laughs> right. And... And and the thing is, is that you know in Cthulhu, often even the cultists like they're 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 crazy. So the uh, and again, I think the way to do that is to conf- reconfigure the mystery so that it's not who 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 did it, uh, whether it's the cultists or Cthulhu, but some other thing. Like how do we rescue this person from the boat before Cthulhu rises, or how do we uh, you know make sure that everybody is evacuated? You know, how do we find the secret that will allow us to evacuate everyone from town before Yogg-Sothoth rampages through it as as uh, as it does every twelve years on this day? So not to change the mystery from who to how or what or ah. What historical parameters pertain when you add pirates to your game? Well, you have to begin with a systematic uh, destruction of state power. That in sounds a... fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 2 of The Best of Phoenix, available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tove and Anders Gilbring. Not by Logical Brothers, but Brothers in Role-Playing. That's the best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. 
the first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. The whir of the projector, the smell of the popcorn, the weird sticky feeling under your feet tell us we've once more entered the black and white confines, or in this case, the brilliant cinemascope confines of the Cinema Hut. And in the Cinema Hut, there is a scent of uh, bibimbap, and um, I don't even know what they eat in Korean and Japanese movie theaters. Do you know what they eat in movie theaters in Asia? Is it popcorn? Uh, all I know are, uh, if you're going to a Cantonese movie house... Uh, the things that you will find at the snack bar include dried cuttlefish, mm-hmm. ovaltine, mm-hmm. and jello. And jello! Yeah. That's what everyone wants. There's always room for jello. Yes. And so perhaps someone who's uh, taught uh, English in Korea can tell us uh, what they what eat the, in Korean uh, movie theaters. In a Korean movie theater. Yeah. Well, I'm, whatever they eat, they're watching the best movies made today. And we are going to talk about some of them, as well as movies that are made in other perfectly sound Asian countries, but mostly Korea. Yes, and these are all uh, Asian action movies of one stripe or another. Uh, they're all Korean except for one, which is from Hong Kong. And uh, these are all uh, suitable for uh, borrowing uh, themes and images and ideas and scenes for your Feng Shui 2 game. Uh, as our ad indicated, Feng Shui 2 is now uh, rocketing toward a start near you, and it is... Uh, since the uh, original flowering of Asian action cinema, it has never been a better time to be an Asian action fan. In fact, it may be the best time ever because uh, not only are we having a renaissance of new things being made, but the previous things stuff is more are available. more available than ever. The Dragon Dynasty titles uh, have been starting to pop up on uh, both U.S. and Canadian Netflix and presumably other Netflixes as well, or perhaps other Netflixes as well. And uh, I thought it would just be the things that were out on uh, Dragon Dynasty DVD, like the real uh, big obvious classics like The Killer and, uh, uh, you know, the early Jet Li stuff. But uh, they recently dropped an 80s romantic comedy with Maggie Chung and and Leslie Chung. Uh, Uh. And what that indicates is that it's got to be the whole Shaw Brothers catalog as well as the select uh, golden harvest titles that dragon dynasty had so that means there's a, a flood of stuff on the way as long as netflix keeps paying whatever they want to uh, pay for it but if they're going that deep in the vault this early it's going to be a, a great time so uh, it's hard to find these things showing up on netflix because netflix does not want to tell you about new things that show up in any easy way you've got to go throughout their algorithm but uh, there's lots of great stuff showing up and in fact many of these including the first one i saw on netflix and the first one is uh kundo age of the rampant uh directed by uh yun jong bin and this is a a period uh sort of virtuous rebel bandits living in the hills versus uh, the evil, corrupt nobles of the Joseon dynasty uh, movie. And it's got uh, a uh, sort of a great kind of rough-hewn hero who uh, starts off as uh, sort of a a kind of a dirty scumbag kind of guy. He's a little bit of reminiscent of the Toshiro Mifune character in Seven Samurai. And he runs the foul of one of the great villains I've seen in a long time who is sort of his opposite number in every way. He's a 
nobleman who's uh, slim and well put together and uh, has this sinister plot to take over the kingdom, basically. And you hate the slim, well put together guys, don't you? He's he's the quintessential overdog. And the thing is, is that in combat, he is just way way better than everybody including our hero and so the hero uh i don't know whether the hero defeats him or not because to tell you of course would be a spoiler uh but it's uh the action choreography is really great in this dynamic uh where you're used to the situation where the you know the guy gets his ass uh kicked and he trains his way up and then he's able to finally uh, deliver the beat down well he trains his way up but he's maybe still not quite good enough and so that's the magical world of asian film yes. where we don't know which ending we exactly, got exactly yes because uh in an uh, asian action movie the uh the hero might survive he might have a pyrrhic victory uh, he have, might have a pyrrhic victory and die he might win you don't know it's not like uh you know an Hollywood action movie, it's only going to end one way, but uh, there's actual suspense in these films, which is uh, uh, something that uh, is uh, one of the many entrancing things about them. So let's uh, move on to the next title, and this is the one Hong Kong uh, movie. I saw this immediately after the last film we're going to talk about, and uh, we're going to talk about the last film last because it is amazing. And so um, this slightly lost a little bit in comparison to that, but it's still a perfectly fun, small-scale, Hong Kong-set contemporary crime movie. And it's by Ringo Lam, who uh, hasn't made a film since Triangle in 2007, and that one was just one-third of an anthology film. Uh, he made uh, Full Contact and a lot of other, uh, a number of other classic uh, films of the early uh, period, and he's back with this uh, story of uh, Louis Koo plays an ex-cop who's now a bar owner, and his uh, stepbrother is this sort of hot-headed uh, ne'er-do-well, and together they get uh, mixed up with this uh, uh, young woman who's on the run from uh, her uh, mob-connected attorney uh, boyfriend, and there might be a bit of stolen money involved, and it's uh, uh, sort of a small-scale, what do you do when you can't uh, quite go to the cops and the cops don't trust you, but you've got these guys who are after you kind of movie. So it's a very uh, simple storytelling. It's got a great uh, Hong Kong atmosphere, and it's just your basic, cool, atmospheric crime title. And that's uh, I just saw that in theaters, so uh, uh, hopefully that will wend its way through uh, the various uh, distribution networks. And I think it was Welco USA, so... That implies that it will eventually show up on Netflix. So uh, look out for Wild City, directed by Ringo Lamb. And now we have uh, the next one, which sounds like every other movie, but is better than every other movie. Uh, we are reliably informed by you, Robin. No tears for the dead. I wouldn't say that this is better than every other movie, but it's still worth a look. Um, this okay. is by right. uh, Lee Jong Bom. This is another Korean film. He directed Company Man, uh, which I would, uh, if you're going to see one of his films, see Company Man first. I think we talked about this earlier on the uh, show, but in brief, it's uh, that is about a, a corporation of assassins that has the same, it's almost sort of a Dilbert-like work atmosphere, <laughs> except they're <laughs> assassins, and then, of course, things start to go wrong. He also did uh, Man from Nowhere, which is a, a great uh, sort of a spy action sort of movie. Yes, that's, yeah, that's also a really great one. Um, this one uh, is maybe, a, it, it's got a couple of elements, and they... Uh, 
don't necessarily fully fuse together, but it's still very worth watching. And it's sort of a, uh, I don't want to say Tarantino-esque collision of different filmic references, but it's definitely a collision of different filmic references. And this is about, uh, it's another uh, story of a, a hired assassin. And in fact, the opening borrows, slashes, pays tribute to uh, two of the great hired killer movies of all time, uh, Melville's Le Samurai with Alain Delon and John Woo's The Killer, which famously uh, references and borrows the first sequence of Le Samurai and then goes off in a completely different direction. So this film yet again recapitulates that uh, first sequence of uh, Le Samurai and also refers to The Killer and uh, then uh, itself goes in yet another direction. And the basic premise here is it's about a uh, hitman who's tied up in this complicated financial conspiracy in uh, Seoul that not only incorporates gangsters, but these uh, financial types who are kind of uh, both in over their head, but also uh, violent and unpredictable. And again, there's a, a woman that he uh, wrongs at the beginning with this assassination, who he then uh, tries to redeem himself and protect. And the final act kind of turns into a tribute to Die Hard. But uh, again, without giving too much away, there's this really interesting, different relationship between the primary antagonist, who is his best buddy after until he betrays his gang in order to redeem himself. And it um, that relationship and the unexpected direction that it takes the story is the thing that I think distinguishes it from just being someone uh, recreating their favorite moments from cool crime and action movies and is therefore uh, worth a look, especially again, if, if you happen to have a, a streaming account and it doesn't cost you anything extra. And speaking of streaming, this is the one uh, on the list when I saw it in the notes that I immediately put on my streaming uh, to watch just as soon as I possibly could. Uh, the Divine Move, which is a movie that instead of being about poker is about Go and is therefore going to have all kinds of great parallels, one assumes, between the tactics of uh, messing with a bad guy and the tactics of Go. Am I am I off base here, Robin? Uh, no, not at all. Um, so basically, it's uh, the director is uh, Joe Bungu, and uh, the idea, it's basically a cross between, it's like rounders, if you um, swap out the poker ad and go and then have heroic bloodshed action in it as well. And so it's uh, not just about playing Go, oh, but it's about being Go hustlers. So the idea is that you get your Go master and set up a secret uh, feed in which he can then uh, watch the board with a little camera and feed into your ears the moves that you have to make in order for you then to be a credible guy at, this, at these Go gambling uh uh, parlors. So it sort of creates this kind of uh, gritty portrait of uh, this world of uh, gambling and playing Go. How actually based in reality it is, I don't know. Rounders is not necessarily when it gets to the crime uh, element of its story, super uh, based in reality either. Oh, uh, but uh, again, it's a, a fun uh, action movie set against a kind of a, a fresh uh, subculture. And then finally, the movie that I, through social media, made you go to a distant suburb to go and see. Uh, and Ken, did you thank me for uh, telling you to go see Assassination, directed by Choi Dong-hoon? I believe I did thank you for 
telling me to go see Assassination, even though I had to go to Niles. It was worth going to Niles. Uh, and not just because you could buy uh, liquor cheaper in Niles, but also for the merits of Assassination, which was one of the best, if not the best, uh, period action films since what? Since Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, yeah, this, maybe. This just- really is a film that stands at the very top of the action canon, along with your Die Hard, along with a Hard Boiled. Uh, assassination, uh, and I've talked a lot, Ken, so why don't you uh, give the premise of this one? The, the premise of assassination is that it takes place in the 1930s when Japan has been occupying Korea for 20 years. Uh, at the beginning of our film, uh, there is an assassination attempt on the Japanese uh, general who runs Korea and on a collaborator, and the collaborator saves the life of the general and therefore is going to rise up in the in the ranks, but his twin daughters are mysteriously separated at the end of it. And then we cut forward to uh, 1933, I believe, when they are getting ready to go back in the uh, provisional Korean government, which I think is in Hangzhou at this point, uh, sends people out. The fighters are hidden over the border in Manchuria. The Japanese have invaded Manchuria, but the rebels are still holding out in the hills. So there's a little of that. And they put together a ragtag team, just like you do, and send them into, into Seoul to assassinate uh, this collaborator and the current Japanese uh, general in charge uh, one last time just to let them know that Korea will cannot be defeated. But of course, that's not all. There is a far from all. magnificent contract killer named Hawaii Pistol. So since he's American, he is obviously better than everyone. Uh, there are great other characters with other great agendas that all move in. Everyone uh, makes sense within their own story. There's a crazy amount of betrayal that they just tell you right up front. Hey, this is a betrayal. And you're like, oh, I can't believe it. That character is too great. It's got to be a a double bluff. And so you spend the whole movie watching for that. And then there is an insane assassination set piece that takes place on this street. This, this huge, beautiful panoramic assassination bit in, in the, in the street, in the middle of uh, Seoul. And at the end, you're like, wow, well, that, that was a movie. And then you look at your watch. It's like, this movie is not no. over. And then they start talking about the wedding <laughs> that was just that's the going to come up. Act set piece. That's the, and it's like, Oh, where they do that thing with the sidecar the and the motorcycle where you wedding. go, why have we not seen anyone do that gag before? Oh, uh, well, we haven't. And just as a little, uh, screw you to America, because despite Hawaii pistol being an American, they're still got their bones to pick. They do the, uh, truck chase scene from Indiana Jones. Only they do it better. Uh, <laughs> So great and filmed better. I mean, yes. Spielberg. I that Hawaii Pistol was American so much as he was a Korean who had been, who spent some time in Hawaii. But well, that makes him an American. His name is Hawaii, Robin. If, if that's Are you the going only... to Bertha? Are you going to turn Bertha now? So if I just name myself after a state, I'm suddenly have full citizenship. <laughs> First of all, it's just about that easy. And second of all, <laughs> hell's yes, Robin. The instant that you let your Canadian uh, guard down, I'm claiming you for the Holy Republic, and you okay. know that's true. So yeah, uh, it's. Uh, as I said before, it, it is one of it is just one of the best action movies. Uh, period. Uh, it's by yeah. uh, the director of The Thieves, which is one of the uh, greatest heist movies you could name, and is also a great. It's a heist movie that turns into a, a frenetic action movie, and that is, uh, I think, on Netflix uh, even as we speak, uh, and in other territories. I'm sure you can licitly find it uh, in other ways, and that's also uh, well worth checking out. Uh, but as much as I loved that one, 
this is uh, an action movie masterpiece, and it's uh, we caught it in theaters a couple of weeks ago, and so that it's at the beginning of its uh, travel through the system. But again, it will eventually show up in uh, DVD and perhaps in streaming, and uh, it's got uh, three uh, great uh, Korean stars in it, and uh, the there's just one great moment after another, which we are very tempted to ruin just by describing them all to you. But mm-hmm. we're going to stick to general praise because uh, I really loved Assassination and uh, I would be yeah. startled if it did not reoccur in our uh, top 10 movie roundup when we uh, do that. That would be a consummation devoutly to be wished, but it is pretty unlikely that I'm going to see 10 better movies than Assassination in the next four months. Uh, in fact, I think it's unlikely I will see 10 movies better than Assassination in the next four years. Uh, it is that good and that worth watching. So if you have your own, uh, Niles out there, which shows Korean films, uh, rush out and see it. And if not, uh, hold yourself in readiness for it to appear on, uh, your local, uh, Netflix. And, uh, on that note, uh, I think I'm going to take this popcorn and, uh, take it to the exit. And, uh, somewhere on the other side of the exit will be our next hot and or segment. It's not easy teaching in America's second worst school district and being a wizard on the side. But Nathan Colwicky thought he had it covered. Until he received news of the worst kind. Inoperable cancer. He'll be dead before the start of the next school year. Now he will have to scour time and unheard of dimensions to find a magical cure to save himself. But can he discover an occult cure before the cancer kills him? And what will he be willing to do to find it? Find out in Terminal Magics, a novel by Plot Points Impresario Ben Riggs. Terminal Magics is currently funding on Inkshares.com, a website which is half Kickstarter, half publishing house. Go to Inkshares.com and search Terminal Magics to hear an audiobook of the first chapter. Ben will also be posting a chapter a week for your reading pleasure. Back the book and a beautiful physical copy of the novel will be delivered to your door, if the book funds. But Ben Riggs is sweetening the deal for the fine audience of Cartus. If the book funds with 1,000 backers, he'll produce an abridged audiobook of the novel and unleash it upon the world for free. Tell your friends, neighbors, investigators, players, and favorite local werewolves. Go to Inkshares.com and search Terminal Magics. That's Inkshares.com and search Terminal Magics. Don't wait, because this campaign will be over faster than you can say, Gareth Ryder Hanrahan! The whirring of time gears and the clacking of chronotons alert us to the fact that we are once more in proximity to Ken's time machine. But this time, Ken's time machine has honey residue all over it because we've got one of our more peculiar assignments in front of us. And Ken Keller has somehow infiltrated Time Incorporated headquarters to assign uh, the following question for an after-action report. And the question is, I'd like Ken to explain to me why he changed the Berenstein Bears to the Berenstain Bears. This is clearly the work of Time Incorporated, but the reasons for doing this change elude me. So, uh, for those of you uh, not in the know, first of all, the Berenstain Bears are a uh, really long series of kids' books. I remember them from when I was a kid, and they're sort of famed for their 
weak sauce quotidian nature. Uh, Charles Krauthammer really hates them, which is, I, I think, a point in their favor. But basically, the, <laughs> the, the formula... Maybe it's a point in Charles Krauthammer's favor. Where's your charity? Where's your Canadian spirit of reaching across the table? Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with anything that annoys Charles Krauthammer is, is scorts and points with me. Well, it, it at least produces good prose when it annoys Char- Charles Krauthammer, because... Sure. Angry Charles is the best Charles. Yes. Anyway, the, the, the thing that uh, annoys uh, more than just Charles Krauthammer about these is that they're sort of very simple formulaic books about a family of bears, and the uh, dad bear is sort of a doofus. Uh, he's an incompetent carpenter, and the uh, starting off the boy-child bear, but then later on uh, the uh, also the younger girl-child bear, may ask him to do something, and then uh, Doofus Dad uh, screws it up royally, but the kids nonetheless draw some sort of inspiring life lesson from this about uh, cleaning up your room or not being a bully or uh, all, there's 45 of them. And I remember them from a kid, but I don't remember the contents of them very much the way that I would Dr. Seuss. You know, it doesn't have the delightful anarchy of Dr. Seuss or the, the darkness of uh, Maurice Sendak or the uh, utter terrors of the... Uh, uh, naughty books before they took all the racism out of them. And, uh, it's, it's just sort of, you know, I guess the word weak sauce comes, comes to mind. You, you kind of suspect looking at the bears that maybe their record collection consists mostly of like the weavers and burl ives and they probably like live on a bear commune and, uh, you know. Also, they simper. Yeah. What I don't like about the bear, the Berenstein bears is they simpered. Your, all, all your other an, an, anthropomorphic animal characters when I was a kid, they didn't simper. They either, had human faces that were just straight up, you know, smiling and talking, or they had animal faces. They didn't simper. I don't, I don't like the simpering of the Berenstein Bears. I didn't like it then, and I don't like it now. Yeah, they're, they're, they're trying too hard to be safe and ingratiating uh, when we all know from our Disney or any of the aforementioned authors that great children's literature is uh, terrifying to the bone and prepares you for the horrors of life. But uh, this just teaches you a bunch of, uh, you know, fairly obvious lessons but obviously there is something uh, really key and a very tiny uh, change uh, somehow had to go in and as the uh, author of the original article uh, that our questioner is pointing to and the questioner himself and myself as well all mentally remember the names of the authors of the uh, rhythmically euphonious Jan and Stan Berenstein as being Berenstein, not Berenstein. But if you look at all of the books, it's clearly Berenstein. Why do we all have this false memory about the authors of these dull children's books? And what is the broader significance of that? Why would you go to all that effort just to change the spelling of their names? All right. This is the sort of thing that when you reveal, it's, it's like when the magician reveals his trick, people say, well, of course, uh, and the fun is gone. And the, the tie off, people are saying that it was sloppy, that, you know, too many people have memories. Those memories are there for a reason. They're there for an important reason. The reason that you make the change in the first place is the same reason that I condemned my city to having just really hideous architecture, uh, produced by Walter Netsch. Uh, and the reason is because in the original timeline, Walter Netsch gets washed out of architecture school, becomes an angry, uh, charismatic leader, launches the world into a genocidal war and kills a billion people. I think people were kind of expecting the Walter Netsch ankle on the Baron. They were expecting the Walter Netsch, uh, that then, because it's one of my go-tos. Well, in the original timeline, there's a guy named Berenstein who, not to put too fine a point on it, is a terrible, terrible 
person and he does a lot of bad things. And I, I can't go into details because the whole point of making the cover up is to erase him from history, right? It's the, you know, you did a bad thing. Well, screw you. You're out of history. No one will ever think of you. Well, listening to this podcast wouldn't squeal to the broader world. I know, but you know, just think of the worst thing that a guy could do to make me go back and erase him. He did something worse than that. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Oh. So. Uh, the thing is that the trouble is that because his name is Berenstein, it winds up tainting the, the, the memory of all those beautiful, uh, simpering weak sauce children's books. And it causes the kind of psychic damage that you're talking about, but not in the good way, not in the Dr. Seuss's ripping the lid off the world of pure anarchy way, but in the, Oh, everything is terrible way. So which it's like you don't people want. going, Oh, these are the lessons of the Hitler bears. Exactly. Right. They're the lessons of the Hitler bears. These, these and the so they grow up and they hamsters. become. They don't, they don't become, uh, uh, proper terrified, uh, people, uh, shivering below an angry god the way that they should. They become disaffected, uh, nihilists. Dis- disaffected 10-year-old nihilists. You don't want that. You don't want a 10-year-old nihilist. That's trouble. Well, I, I was a 10-year-old nihilist, but, but continue. By and large, Robin, it's trouble. <laughs> if, if you are saying, if you're saying right now that you are the pattern to which all must conform. Oh, no. Yeah. Dude, there can right. be only one. There can be only one. <laughs> that's, and I've, that's yet another episode with more beheadings in it. I've undertaken specific tasks to make sure that there is only one, Robin, because I only need that much competition. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, where were we? All right, Berenstein. So I had to go back and change the name of the Berenstein Bears to the Berenstain Bears so that the, the world of 10-year-olds would be, um, uh, would, would be safe for, you know, running around and hitting each other or whatever it is 10-year-olds do now. Not be Berenstain. Not be Berenstain. But I had to leave the memories so that in case he emerges through the work of the rival time group to try his actions again, People will say, oh, like the stupid bears, right? And so he will immediately be discomfited. So the, the, the pool of memories is not a sloppy tie-off. It is a psychic reservoir in which to drown his efforts if he does return in futility. And that's the goal. So you have to erase him out of the, out of history, change the name so that the 10 year olds don't become nihilists and then leave the memories so that in case he comes back, people say, Oh, well, I would do that horrible thing, but that's the kind of thing that stupid simpering bear family would do. So I'm not going to. <laughs> um, well, I think that uh, perfectly uh, adequately uh, answers the question. And I guess, is there anything more about uh your tasks that you can uh, reveal without possibly allowing the uh, the resurgence of uh, of Berenstein. Well, I I can recommend that people go to the blog The Wood Between the Worlds and look up the original post on the topic by a guy named Reese who knows way too much about time travel and how uh, the dimensions actually work to be entirely trustworthy. But he is the guy who stumbled onto the Berenstein effect first, and so therefore he is. He is, uh, he is a man to watch. I would just say that. I would say, look at his blog. It's sort of physics, but it's a little weird. He talks about the Voynich manuscript and Narnia and uh, are we all living in the Matrix and all the kinds of good questions that you want. Philip Pullman comes in for a, a little talk. So there's there's a lot of good stuff in there, and, and, and I would recommend checking out his exposition of the Berenstein question because it contains more truth than I think even he knows. So if you were to uh, continue the veil out by uh, giving your story to Kevin Culp to turn into a time watch scenario, uh, what would you uh, instruct him to do? Well, first of all, I wouldn't make it Berenstein Berenstain because you get sued. But in your own game, 
it'd be fun to change the spelling of Dr. Seuss, I think. And that that would be an interesting sort of thing. And maybe you don't do it because there's an evil guy named Seuss who's going to mess with you. But that that it's a good sort of setup mystery because... Well, probably his original name was Dr. Zeus. Yeah. And that would mean that he, uh, you know, they had to change... You have to change his name so that he no longer has the mythic power not only to imagine the cat in the hat and the Lorax and the Sneetches, but to immunitize them and to uh, bring them into reality. But I would say on that connection that there is a Dr. Seuss, S-U-E-S-S, who was part of the German nuclear program in World War II. So there. So now you've got two Dr. Seusses. You've got the very commendably, ferociously anti-fascist our Dr. Seuss, Ted Geisel, and remember, that's not his real name. He takes the Dr. Seuss pseudonym. So maybe he has to take it. You have to go back in time in order to get Ted Geisel to take that magical name away from someone who's going to misuse it. Right. Uh, to to um, uh, manipulate uh, Dr. Hans Seuss's name in the Cantosphere. And once you start adding the Cantosphere into Time Watch, you can go crazy because you can go into those Simon Hawk novels that are all the, uh, the, the, uh, famous fiction happening in real history. You can, uh, go into the world of, uh, Jasper Ford, uh, the, the air affair and all of those, uh, wonderful things where they're bouncing around between the alternate book universes. And I think that that is where, uh, our boy Kevin can really flourish if you open the door in between the Nazi nuclear program and uh, the cat in the hat and go into the cantosphere from there. I think that would be great fun. Right. The writing of Yertle the Turtle may have been part of the great working. Exactly. And then you start looking for alchemy in the works of Dr. Seuss, you know, uh, the 500 hats of Bartholomew Cubbins or the many uh, efforts that you have to use because he keeps reaching into the Athenor to get something out. Uh, Ublek becomes the, the alkahest. Obviously, it is. Orton hearing a who is talking about the macrocosm and the microcosm. There, you start looking for the, the, the alchemical symbolism in Dr. Seuss. It goes all the way down. So uh, you will note, uh, listeners, on a, a metal level, as we are about to exit uh, this segment of a Ken's Time Machine, how adroitly we stopped talking about a, a series of kids' books that we are bored to death by and started talking about the one we really like. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Phoenix. Terminal Magics. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Avoid transdimensional bear confusion by hitting the donate button at Ken and Robin talk about stuff.com. Join such recurring donors as Rick Neal. And Daniel Callahan. Donations soon to become more convenient than ever with the launch of our upcoming Patreon. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.